Would you please pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word today, uh, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that you would uh, cause us to see Christ in these passages and have our hearts lifted up to him. Lord, we have enjoyed a time of worship today, praising your name, reveling in your promises, the goodness to us that you've shown us in Christ. Lord, we would see more of it today. And we pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would send your spirit to cause us to uh, give up the lesser joys as, or put them in their place, Lord, in our lives, and take joy in the greatest joy in Christ Jesus, our Savior who sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins and promises to take us to heaven to be with him someday. Cause us to see these things, Lord. Uh, cause our hearts to be changed. It's in your name we pray, amen. So, um, my name's Paul Martin. I'm a, a previous elder and sometime preacher here at River Hills. I'd, uh, we're in uh, 1 Samuel 20 today. So if you wanna turn there and make sure you keep that text open as we as we uh, listen to God's word today, I'd appreciate that. It'd be good for you and for all of us. So do you, uh, do you know a story where things are, they seem to be going great for the heroes when all of a sudden things take a disastrous turn? So I think like the, uh, the Avengers Endgame movie, after the first couple of acts getting towards the end, the superheroes are walloping the bad guys' minions, the path to victory looks clear, then all of a sudden, half the Earth's population and half of the superheroes are wiped out when Thanos snaps his fingers, and the movie ends. What about in The Lord of the Rings, when the hobbits are standing above the fires of Mount Doom, about to throw the One Ring in and end the power of the Dark Lord Sauron? When the desire for the power of the ring finally catches hold in Frodo's heart, and he betrays his quest at the last moment. See, that's, that's where the story of King David takes us today. Uh, but that's not how it's looked so far. We've just come off a section of the story that, that, uh, of David that makes it look like things are going really well for David. Uh, Samuel has told him God intends to make him the king. Uh, he's defeated Goliath. He led Israel to victory over the Philistines. The people love him. He's been given authority and military power under Saul. He's married to royalty. He's escaped Saul's sneak attacks, and God himself has miraculously intervened to humble Saul and protect David. Things are going well for David. It seems like just a matter of time before the kingship passes to him, and God starts to show his people what a real king is like, a king after God's own heart, an obedient king who fears God and loves his people. But what do we do with a story when it looks like the bad guy has won. The good guys have been defeated. The path to victory has been closed. See, that's what it looks like when you get to today's passage. Uh, fresh after Saul's uh, humiliation at Noth, David seeks out Jonathan and tries to get a final answer from him. Will Jonathan's father continue in this course of seeking to end David's life or not? Will Saul submit himself to God's choice of David as his anointed? or continue in his rebellion against it. David wants to know so he can plan and act accordingly. So Jonathan and David meet, they affirm their love and their commitment to each other, and then they make a plan to find out what Saul's intentions are. The results of their plan are productive, but it's shockingly brutal. 
Not only is Saul still dead set on killing David, but he communicates this in the harshest terms possible. David is his enemy, and so is anyone on David's side. He tries to kill Jonathan. Jonathan is understandably upset and angry. He goes to Jonathan, communicates the results of their plan, and they sorrowfully bid each other farewell, correctly thinking this is just about the last time that they're ever going to see each other. You can feel the pain, the loss, the sorrow of parting, of shame and disgrace and danger. See, this is the story of how David, the king after God's own heart, is detoured on his path to kingship. At least it looks like it. The rebellious, selfish, prideful, disobedient king has won this battle against the humble, obedient, valiant shepherd king. Or has he? See, if you're familiar with the stories I mentioned at the beginning, you know that they capture our hearts so well because the good guy does win in the end, or the good guys. The Avengers save the day, the one ring is destroyed. We're used to a narrative arc coming around to the good guys winning. And the same's true in, in the story of, of David's story, right? All you have to do is read 2 Samuel, it's a couple dozen pages ahead, and you'll see that he ends up as king. Right? The original intended audience of this book, of 1 and 2 Samuel, they already know that, he's, that this is about the greatest king Israel's ever had, King David. Uh, things may be bad here in chapter 20, but we all know that he'll come out on top. But something important is lost to us when we're so used to seeing the good guys winning by the end of the movie, uh, which usually takes about 30 minutes from you know, when things are at their darkest. We may not take the time to realize that for David... Didn't look like he was going to win here. Uh, for David and for Jonathan, it looks like they've lost, that God has lost, that the disobedient king, the king after man's own heart, Saul, is winning or has won. Even if he doesn't manage to kill David, it seems like there's no way God, David is getting to that kingship. And that, that is our story, too, the story, the, the people of God's story. The story of a journey to heaven beset by seemingly insurmountable difficulties. Faced with a future battling an incurable condition, might never be cured. We might suffer from it for the rest of our lives and then die. When my child is ill or injured, there's no guarantee that they'll live and will come out the other side healthier and happier. When my close friendship is threatened by conflict, there's no assurance that we'll resolve our differences and end up closer friends than ever before. Or when faced with financial problems, the money might indeed run out. We might face a life of poverty, maybe even homelessness. We need to understand that bad things can and will happen to us, things that threaten our safety and security, things that make it seem like we are off the path to heaven. They happen to David, the man after God's own heart, the one appointed by God's prophet to reign over God's people as the good king who rules righteously under God. Bad things happen to him. And just like David's life, our lives will be seemingly derailed with misery, pain, suffering, and uncertainty. We don't know that our illness will be cured. We don't know that our children will live and be healthy. And we don't know that we will still be friends with those we love at the end of the day. Question is, what should we do how should we act? What should we feel when we're at these low points? Well, what did 
David do? What does a perfect king, a truer true king that David pictures, what did Jesus do when faced with the same looming defeat, the same impending pain, the same prospect of suffering? And that's the big picture here. That's why I think this passage is given to us by God, to help us understand that glory doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come along a path of roses. It doesn't come after a life of being accepted and lauded and praised. It comes after walking down a path of thorns. It comes after being rejected and hated and reviled. It comes after being exiled. And it comes after being crucified. See, that's the point. This is the place where we see David start down the road to exile, fugitive, homeless, wanderer. And it helps us realize that God's path for his chosen king, David's perfect son, Jesus, would be the same. A suffering Messiah, a suffering anointed one is foreshadowed all too clearly here in 1 Samuel 20. It's the same path for us. Again, what what does heading down that path look like? What did it involve for David? What did it involve for Jesus? And what will it involve for us? So the title of today's sermon is Suffering on the Path to Kingship. The first point is, the road to God's kingdom is full of danger and pain, so expect earth, not heaven. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, David and Jonathan know that their situation is full of danger. Uh, Look what David says. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. See, their whole conversation is full of the realization that they are in great danger, that Saul is murderous and powerful, and that the peril is very real. Uh, David is not king yet. They still live in Saul's kingdom. And so they lay out a plan. And, and you know, the details of the story, the plan that they have, there's a, there's a lot of details, but they aren't shared with us, the readers, so that, that we'll know how wise Jonathan and David are and how they make their plans, how cunning and crafty they are and, and all the plans they make. Uh, rather, these details are written by the author so that we will realize that, that none of these things, these things don't take but Jonathan and David by surprise. They aren't blissfully ignorant or unaware of the danger. They aren't oblivious. They know there is great danger, that the external circumstances of their lives could mean death at any turn. They know that for now, they live in the kingdom of Saul, the rebellious self-ruler who rejects God and God's anointed. And you know, Jesus, David's promised descendant, knew that same thing his whole life. He knew he would never have a permanent home on earth. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds there have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus knew he would be rejected wherever he went in Israel. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He knew he would suffer. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He knew he would die. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. But, and he knew that he just didn't know that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to be crucified. One of the most cruel, painful, and humiliating deaths the Romans could inflict on someone. 
And the Son of Man will be, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. God's true king, Jesus, was not expecting life to be easy and pain-free. God's king expects opposition and hardship. God's king knows that the kingdom is coming, but for now, we're in Saul's kingdom, and it's a place of peril and pain. See, brothers and sisters, we too must not be taken unaware. I think one of the greatest dangers to us, to our faith and hope and trust in the kingdom of Jesus, is when we expect and demand heaven now, instead of realizing that this fallen earth, even at its very best, is only a foretaste of heaven. So, so let me explain how that happens in a couple of different ways. It can happen with our work, right? I can demand or we can demand that our work, whether in our home or out of the home, we can demand that it always produces the good things that are a natural outcome of our work. And when it doesn't, when projects fail, when things break, when kids refuse to be schooled, when bosses act like tyrants, we complain or we hang all our happiness on a better career, or we become lazy and apathetic about the work God calls us to, we end up being taken by surprise by the suffering and responding in a sinful way when it turns out my work is full of suffering. But consider a second way we can demand and expect heaven now. It might, might happen in our relationships, right? We can, we can demand other people, oftentimes other Christians, uh, treat us in a loving way. We go into a church expecting this will be a place where I'll be safe and loved and cared for, a family that embraces us just the way we are. And then someone in church hurts me. Uh, you know, maybe I tell them and they apologize and ask for forgiveness, and our relationship gets better. Then they hurt me again. Or someone else hurts me and someone else starts ignoring me. And before too long, I'm rudely awakened to the fact that this family, this church, is full of people who are going to bump and bruise me along, uh, as long as I stay close. So, so maybe I pull away from the relationships and I start distancing myself from the people who, as far as I can tell, will keep hurting me. Does this sound like you? Uh, can I encourage you with, it might be hard words to hear, but I, I think it can be encouraging. The people in this church sitting around you in these pews, they're gonna hurt us. I will hurt you. You will hurt us. Uh, for as long as you and I are walking towards heaven together, right? Um, and we need each other's forbearance because we're not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. And the journey is taking place in a fallen world among sinners, redeemed sinners, yes, but sinners just like you and me who are still struggling against the flesh. So I know that sounds pretty grim, but there, there's hope. I promise we'll get there. Uh, but for now, the first point is that the road to God's kingdom is full of danger and pain, so expect earth, not heaven. And second, lean on your Christian family. Lean on your Christian family. So by Christian family, I mean the members of the, bo of the bodies of believers that God has placed you among. But wait a second, didn't I just say that the members of your church will end up hurting and disappointing you? So why am I saying that we need to lean on each other, lean on our Christian family? Well, look at Jonathan and David. In the midst of this painful, sorrowful, discouraging time, who do they lean on? Well, yes, they ultimately lean on God's promises, 
But what are the normal, ordinary means that God uses in David and Jonathan's lives to keep them walking on the path of faith in God's promises? It's each other. David, in the midst of this threat to his life, this deadly danger, he leans on Jonathan. He asks for his help. He depends on his counsel. He puts his life in his hands. And Jonathan, Jonathan stands up for David to his father's face at the risk of his own life. He assures David of his love for him. He encourages him. Just listen to the words Jonathan says in verse 15. Do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And then finally, verse 17, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So if you read that, can you tell whether it's David who loves Jonathan as his own soul or Jonathan who loves David as his own soul? I can't. Maybe there's an answer if you know Hebrew. I don't. Um, But do you know why I think that is? Because they loved each other as they loved their own soul. They knew that each of their earthly good was wrapped up in the other's good. You see, Jonathan's biological family has abandoned him even if he hasn't abandoned them. Even the way they sit at the table with Saul and his, and his brother, General Abner, sitting opposite Jonathan, shows that they are now on different sides of this issue here. It isn't that Jonathan hates his family, it's that they hate God's anointed because of the threat he poses to their personal kingdom. And because Jonathan has sided with David, God's anointed, his family now hates him. Uh, Saul's language is especially vicious when he finds out that his son loves and supports David, essentially saying that he's so angry and disgusted with Jonathan that he feels it's a shame that he was ever born. See, in this rejection by his own family, Jonathan could be tempted to reject supporting God's anointed in favor of a healthy relationship with his father, the king. Instead, what he does is he doubles down on David. He says... Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. What Jonathan spoke about David, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Was true, but only in a limited sense. There was another king coming a promised heir of David, of the only one of whom it can ever be rightly said he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And that's Jesus. David did not, he did indeed not deserve to die by Saul's hand. And David did deserve Jonathan's love and loyal affection as God's anointed. But he was only a picture of the truer true king to come. David was a part of the house of God was building, but he wasn't the builder. He was a part of God's people. He was not God. And Jesus, the builder himself, God himself, with a life of perfect love leading to perfect obedience, deserves our love so much more and deserves death, deserves death so much less. 
His love for his Father and for us, his people, led him to leave the glory and joy of heaven, to come to earth, to live a life of sacrificial love and service to others, and then to die on a cross to save his people from the just punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. And then, once the redeeming work of salvation was done, he promises to sanctify us, to make us more like himself. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers, back to family. And again in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see what that means for us? Like Jonathan, we realize that because of the work of Jesus, we are children in God's family, brothers and sisters because of Christ, the Messiah, the true anointed king of God's people, made to be his family through the work that he accomplished on the cross, united to him by bonds that are stronger than those which bind any earthly family, and united to each other by bonds that are stronger than those which bind any earthly family. So do you and I see those around us as family? Look around today. These are your brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter if we feel like they're our brothers and sisters. They are if we and they are in Christ. Together as a family, God will build us up into a holy temple. Together as a family, God will conform us to the likeness of his son. Together as a family, God will bring us to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what does this idea of the family of God mean when you and I are on the path of suffering, like David and Jonathan, like Jesus? Well, it means that we care for one another in our suffering. Think about 2 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. When I suffer, I look to Christ and to my church family helps me look to Christ. And when my brother or sister in Christ is suffering, I help them look to Christ just as I have been helped. That means I share how Jesus has helped me in my suffering. That means I share the way God has encouraged me. It means I help them in their suffering, bearing their burdens and weeping with those who weep. It also means we do things to help alleviate the suffering or burdens of those in my church family God has put me in. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, the household of faith. This is, that's, verses like that, that's the reason pretty much everyone in this church should consider if they can join in the work of the church life team, the ministry team whose mission is to stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ while providing for the practical needs of the body. Isn't that awesome? See, when we get emails saying, so-and-so is moving and we need volunteers to help, or when we ask for folks to bring food for a funeral or, or wedding, and when your growth group sends out a meal train for new parents, 
The reason to sign up for these things isn't to do our good deed for the month or so that they'll do the same thing for us down the road. It's because these people, this church, is our family and we love to be with and help and bear the burdens of our family. So I lean on my family and they lean on me. If you want to know other ways that are meant by the leaning on, just look at any of the massive amounts of one another commands in scriptures. Those are a good place to start. Uh, John 13, 34, love one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, 19, build up one another. Ephesians 4, 2, forgive one another and be patient with one another. Ephesians 5, 20, submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, encourage one another. And James 5, 16, pray for one another and confess your faults to one another. And there's lots more. Doing these things is what it means to live as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Doing these things is what it means to look like the family of God. Doing these things is what it means to love one another as we love our own souls, just like David and Jonathan did, and like Christ did better than any earthly brother. You see, the road to God's kingdom is full of danger and pain, so expect earth, not heaven. Lean on your Christian family, and third and finally, Hope in God's promises. Hope in God's promises. We've now gotten to the heart of the matter. The thing that really gets to why David and Jonathan act the way they do. The thing that is the fuel in the gas tanks of their hearts and hopefully ours. Remember, just four chapters ago, God has promised David he will be king how he and Jonathan act here now in the midst of the downfall of their immediate hopes of God giving Israel a good king, of fulfilling his promises to them, how they act now is a measure of their trust in God's promises. David trusts. He acts in faith. He knows the road will be hard, but he embraces the suffering for the promised joy set before him. He plans, makes wise decisions, works to preserve his own life in the face of immediate danger, But in all of that, mostly what he does is he trusts God's promises. Jonathan, too, he knows this, David, is God's appointed promised king. He knows there's no hope of life in Israel here apart from David. God is only working to save his people through David now. Uh, There isn't another plan. Jonathan tells David, God's anointed king, to rule under God's perfect rule. He tells him, behold, the Lord is between me and me forever. And he tells David, God's representative, to rule for God's, uh, for God's people's good. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. He hopes in God's promises to work through God's anointed king. But there's something else going on here that we have to understand that we have to see. Jonathan says something else that's so very important. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. See, he reiterates that same idea um, the, the next time Jonathan sees David. Then you see, the next time they see each other, that is the last time David and Jonathan see each other. It's in chapter 23. And there Jonathan says, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. 
This is so amazing. Because if you've read further in 1 Samuel, you'll know that Jonathan does indeed die. Uh, he dies in the same battle that kills his father. Uh, David is kind to his descendant, Mephibosheth, but Jonathan is dead. So what's going on? Does it turn out that uniting yourself to God's chosen king, the king after God's heart, is pointless after all because you're just going to die anyway? No, no, not at all. It's just that David is not the final true king. He's not the promised son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. David is not the one that Mo Moses promised in Deuteronomy that would be a prophet after him who would lead his people to a new freedom from spiritual slavery. David is not the true high priest, better than Eli and his sons, better than Aaron and his sons, a high priest who would offer one final effective sacrifice for the sins of his people. You see, what Jonathan saw dimly in David, we see fully in Christ. Like Jonathan, because of God's promises to provide a king for us, we can say to Jesus, I shall be next to you. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And because the true king, King Jesus, has come, because he suffered unimaginable horrors on our behalf, on the cross, because of the sins we have committed, and because he rose from the dead, we can have assurance that we will live eternally, even though we too might die physically like Jonathan. You see, God has kept his promises since time began. He promised to save Noah, and he did. He promised to bless Abraham, and he did. He promised to bless Isaac and Jacob, and he did. He promised to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, and he did. He promised to give his people the land of Canaan, and he did. David and Jonathan know they can trust God's promises to make David king. And then when Jesus came to earth, was born as a human baby, he lived a whole life of always perfectly trusting God's promises, of perfect faith in the goodness of his Father, in perfect hope that God would work for his good, and in perfect belief that the suffering was worth it for the glory that was set before him. And when Jesus sends his spirit to us to change our hearts, to cause us to love God and make us his sons, he gives us the credit for his whole life of perfect trust in God's promises. Now, now we look back on all the promises our God has kept and we see that all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. He fulfilled all God's work and he fulfills all the hopes of God's people. He provides the fuel in the gas tanks of our hearts that keeps us hoping in the midst of pain and suffering and loss. He's the thing that we can count on because not even dying like Jonathan can separate us from our king and his love for us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What amazing assurance. What a divine hope. What a place of refuge in this world of distress. Jesus loves us, his people, and he will never let us go. Will never abandon us, will never leave us, and will never be overcome.
So what does that mean for us? Well, I don't know about you, but my life has pain in it. I'll bet yours does too, or will at some point. Sometimes less, sometimes more, sometimes a lot more. Will you and I put our hope in some other lesser thing? Will we, will we put our hope in the pain ending? Will we put our hope in distractions from the pain? Will we give up hope and give in to despair? See, when my spouse is treating me poorly, will I, will I set my hope on them treating me better? And if that fails, sink into despair, apathy, or lash out in anger? Will we put our, or will I hope in Jesus and walk in obedience to him, leading without domination or passivity, submitting without usurpation or servility? When money is tight, Will I hope in a future of financial security and act greedily now to obtain it? Or will I trust in Jesus, content with what I have and trusting that he will provide me everything I need to make it safely to heaven? My church doesn't feel like my home anymore because of lost relationships or difficulty with other Christians or church leadership. Will I set my happiness on new relationships or fixing leadership And if those things fail, abandon my church or give up on church altogether? Or will I hope in Jesus and love the people of the church I'm in like my brothers and my sisters? Kids, when your parents don't treat you in accord with the level of maturity that you've attained and they're unreasonable and they don't listen, will you rebel and disdain them? Or will you hope in Jesus and obey them in the Lord. Parents with grown children, when your grown children give every appearance of abandoning Christianity, will you grow angry with them and distance yourself from them, berate and harangue them? Or will you hope in Jesus and do good for them while recognizing that they are in God's hands? Will we hope in Jesus, that great king who went before us into a fiery hell of suffering so that we will not have to suffer it? Will we keep on the path that he has set before us with confidence and trust and hope because he went before us and he's with us and he will make sure we make it to the end? See, the road to God's kingdom is full of danger and pain, so expect earth, not heaven. Lean on your Christian family and hope in God's promises. Please pray with me. Lord God, we um, are weak and we still fight sin and we are so easily distracted from what we know is the great hope set before us, Lord. Lord, we we pray that you would cleanse our minds and our hearts of idolatrous hopes, Lord, that you would focus our gaze uh, so that we're not so easily distracted from our great hope. Lord, we pray that you would uh, soften our hearts that are hard naturally towards Jesus and cause us to see his beauty, his glory, his mercy, his love, his kindness, and that we would be drawn to this great Savior and that we would place all of our hope in him for what he has done, what he promised to do, and for the life 
that can be lived with him in heaven forever, Lord. I pray that that would be our hope today, that we would carry that hope throughout this week and the rest of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.